And so they were, we were all working on open source stuff and there was no really good place to share it. Um, most people would kind of host their own servers or, or put it on something like SourceForge. And, and so uh, when they were talking about you know, having a really nice place to put Git code, that was really, I think, what the original vision was, was a place for side projects, um, a place for open source, you know, a depot that you could, you could put open source code. In the beginning, it was really just code hosting that didn't suck, right? And I don't even think that they had a, a, an idea to monetize it at first. I think that actually came because one of our friends, uh, Jeffrey Grosenbach, he wanted to use it for private stuff, right? He was like, I love this, I wanna use Git, but I don't wanna you know, have this for my public stuff and then have to run my own Git server as well. Um, but it's for private code, right? So can I pay you to, to make that uh, private? It's DeAndre here, and this is the Pioneers Show, the show where we talk with innovators, makers, entrepreneurs, basically people who are trailing their own trails and creating their own lives so that we all can learn how to work on our own lives. This is episode 17, and I'm your host, Andre Delquet. You can find me at It's DeAndre on Twitter and on Instagram, as well as the show at Pioneers Show on Instagram as well. Truth be told, this is going to be part of a two-part episode. The conversation I had with this episode's guest was so, so enticing that when we stopped talking and looked at the clock, almost two hours went by. So, in order to be easier to consume the conversation, I decided to cut it into two different episodes. Funny thing, it's almost as though as it was meant to be. It's clearly divided in half by the two different main themes. However, as you can imagine, we talk about 100 different things. But enough explaining the structure, so let me introduce the guest. This week's guest is Scott Chacon. Scott is one of the co-founders of GitHub, one company that, if you've never heard of it, most clearly you're not a developer. GitHub is one of the main spots for teams to work on code together. In Scott, it's one of its co-founders. On top of it, he's the author of ProGit, a book about the underlying technology and techniques that GitHub is based on. Besides that, he's also the founder and CEO of Cherubug, a new language learning startup that is trying to revolutionize today's somewhat saturated market. With companies of the like of Duolingo and Babbel, Scott figured he found a different solution to work on the language learning problem. In this episode, we clearly focus on his experience of GitHub, what it is, what it does, and briefly mention his acquisition by Microsoft. Yeah, basically they were just reportedly acquired by around $7.5 billion. I can't stress enough how much this interview meant for me and how awesome and genuine a person Scott seems to be. Without talking anymore, I hope you enjoy the first part of my conversation with Scott Chacon. And here with us, we have Scott. Hello, Scott. Welcome to the Pioneers Show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, this is actually, it's a great pleasure to have you here. I've been looking for someone who's much more on the technical side, but also on the business side, which is kind of hard to find, even though some of the previous guests have been. So for people who don't know who you are, could you give us like a pitch about Scott? Sure. So my name is uh, Scott Jacone. Uh, I'm American and I grew up in California um, and uh, started, I, I worked in tech for a while being a software developer. Um, I was one of the co-founders of GitHub. Um, if you don't know what GitHub is, it's a, a sort of large um, Facebook for programmers, a place to sh share code, right? Um, and if you, if you are in tech, you probably know what GitHub is, but um, so yeah, I was there for, in, in the Bay Area for about eight years at GitHub. And then I've recently left GitHub and started a new company called Chatterbug. That's a language learning company that's, um, mostly, uh, based in Berlin. Great. Okay. So then before we go on to GitHub specifically, so you were, you were at software development. Was it always there? Were you, how, how were you like as a kid? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I got interested in computers um, probably a, pretty early. Um, I didn't really program or, or do any of that until, until later, but my grandfather was really into computers and, and had, um, you know, one of those sort of comu- computers with the big 8-inch floppy drives that, you know, you'd, you'd stick stuff in or like the tape, uh, the actual like cassette tape um, s- storage systems. And so I, I was around computers a little bit and, and kind of shared that interest in them. But I didn't actually get into programming until I graduated from high school. Um, so it wasn't like I was, you know, in the basement as a high schooler, mm-hmm. you know, working on Unix or something. But um, but it, it, it just became fun, like a, a hobby, really. Like I, I, I worked on it professionally. I, you know, compiled my own Linux kernels and stuff um, in, in college. Like that was sort of the thing that I was into. Um I was like the one guy using Linux for all of my college stuff uh, from all of my friends and, and everything, even including people that were in CS in San Diego. I went to UC San Diego. And um, it just became something that was really interesting. When I graduated, I, I actually graduated with an art degree, and and it, it was, just seemed more fun to, to do the computer stuff. So I ended up getting a job in it, and, and it was always kind of easy for me. It was always very interesting for me. It was always something I liked doing in my spare time as well. Um, and so I've been kind of really lucky that I get to do something that has, that pays very well, um, that has, you know, been great for me, but also, you know, I would just do on the weekends anyways, right? Like it, 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 I, it's something that is just very interesting to me to, to make computers do things. I, I enjoy the logic and, and I think it's fun. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, the sort of privilege of, of my upbringing that my grandpa had computer in the house in a, in a time when almost nobody did, um, allowed me to, to get into it, but I wasn't a, like hacking on stuff mm-hmm. until I was older. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, and touching on that, so you learned how to program during, after high school and college. Yeah, right? I took computer science classes in, in high school, um, but I wasn't really interested in it. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't doing it in my spare time or anything until I got a job doing it. Um, and it started actually, interestingly, it started as data entry. So like I got a, a temp job through a, like a youth employment thing in my, in mm-hmm. my hometown um, in between high school and, and going off to college. Um, and and it was essentially just like, here's, you know, Fox Pro database or whatever, go through them and go through like this this list of instructions and try to filter them on these things and then print out lists and we'll, we'll mail it out to, it was for a trade show company. Um, and why I really got into computer programming is because I realized that Fox Pro actually had a scripting language behind mm-hmm. it. Um, and so not just that you could write programs to go and do some of these things and automate them, um, but you could also run SQL. So there was actually a SQL engine mm-hmm. in it. And nobody that I was working with even knew this. And so I just I like pulled a book off the shelf to try to make my repetitive job a little bit easier um, and ended up writing these scripts. And after a while, the guy in the data you know, processing, the temp kid mm-hmm. in the data processing thing was writing scripts that were replacing people's jobs in the company because they didn't know how to make the software more, more efficient. And so I, I kind of software programmed my way out of a job there and, and they they just because tra- you know we, we could process things so much faster with the software mm-hmm. that I wrote and so they, they transferred me to the to the programming portion of the company um, and I ended up working remotely for that company all the way all, the whole way through college so um, uh, but that's how I got into it right it's like I was given a boring job and then realized that the tool was scriptable 
um, and then tried to make my own job easier and, and, and got into it that way. And I, I feel like I'm still kind of doing that, right? Like you see a problem, it's really repetitive. It's not very efficient and, and computer programming can help make that more efficient. And, mm-hmm. and just that love of that, that interest in, in fixing a problem like that, um, I think is what's kind of driven me through my whole career. I think that's really curious because you're not literally not the first person to tell me this. And actually on the podcast, the, the 10th episode with Jack Sink, he's the, uh, he's a former investor, used to be on the, the um, Democratic uh, Congress, not not Congress. He was part of the Hillary Clinton social media mm. digital communication strategy. And he literally said that he learned how to program because he found a job that was boring and found a way to automate it. Yeah. And have you ever read the book Deep Work? No. He, the, the, the first example that the Cal Newport, I think that's what he says, is that a, a guy that w- used to do data entries on Excel figured out how to work on macros. Yeah. So for seven or eight months, I think I might be not entirely, but he was learning how to program on the side while doing macros and doing things much faster than senior analysts in that company. And then he quit the job and started and went into computer science and now he's a programmer somewhere. But yeah. I, I like that idea. And one of the things that I kind of see in the developer area is that I'm not entirely sure. I'm seeing this from someone from the side. I'm not a technical technical person just yet, but I seem to think that almost all developers are self-taught. Yeah, I mean, you can obviously go through through school and do it and and get a job and have a good career. I think if if you learn it uh, in college or whatever. I mean, I learned when I was in college, but I I did teach myself a lot because. Um, because of the pro- the problem sets that I was looking at, but I was also I, there were people in the computer science um, department at at UCSD, which is a really good computer science department that are in that field because their parents wanted them to go into computer science, you know, and and thought that it was a good career for them, mm-hmm. and kind of you know forced them down that path, and you could tell that they didn't like it, like they they didn't really love computers, like they mm-hmm. they programmed on it for school projects and they would get through and they get a, a, a degree and a career and they go on, but, but they weren't playing with, with stuff, you know, in their spare time. Um, and, and I found it through trying to automate a thing, but then I kind of fell in love with it because it's just a cool, you can create anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's, it's a, it's like, I don't know, getting interested in cameras or something, right? Where where you start it for having a particular reason and then you get you become like a nerd in it because the deeper you go, the more interesting it gets, right? And you're building your own cameras or you're you're getting into the the game. And and you would even if you don't need it professionally, right? And it just so happens with computers, it's really useful professionally to have this type of interest as of well. But but I mean, there are definitely lots of people that I think have gotten really, really success you know, gone on and had good careers and been successful that that weren't really self-taught, but they also don't have a love for it, right? Mm-hmm. And and so, well, I think that that's possible. I don't know why it would be worth it. Like, like I think if you're not doing what you love every day, um, why whether, do it? Yeah, why do it? Yeah. And once again, touching on something you just said, is that I can share with you the, the example of this podcast specifically. I was never an audio person. I listened to music, but I didn't care anything about that. And I remember back in Portugal, I wanted to know entrepreneurs in Portugal, so I decided I wanted to get... get on the same table as some people in the Portuguese ecosystem. But since they were too big or high level for me, I didn't know how to get them. So basically my idea was I will record them and say it's a media thing and they will love it. But I didn't know anything about podcasting. They didn't know about anything about microphones, headphones. And right now, even though I might not have the best gear, I can tell you the best gear for any any situation. So it's something that I've been 
toying on my spare time, trying to learn more about frequencies and which kind of materials it's about. So it's it's fun that you you mentioned that. Yeah, I mean, I think you know whatever you're doing, you you should love it because you're doing it every day. And and it's it's interesting for me as well. We'll probably get into the the GitHub thing mm -hmm. um, in a bit, but. You know, it was acquired by Microsoft, and mm -hmm. and I, I have a, a fair amount of uh, I had a fair amount of um, percentage of stock mm -hmm. in that as well, and so I don't really technically need to work, right? Yeah. But the the it's not I, I could just do nothing for the rest of my life, but it's really boring. And what's interesting is that you know, on hearing news of of that. Um, because I have this this other startup that mm -hmm. I'm running and it can be stressful and I am still programming. It's small enough that I'm still doing a lot of actual software development. Um, but it was a very easy decision to keep doing this, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and actually to take what I've gotten from the GitHub thing and reinvest it into this because even though I don't need to work, it, this is what I love doing. Mm -hmm. and, and when I was doing it at GitHub, I didn't start at GitHub because I thought it was going to be a big thing that was going to sell to Microsoft for all of this money and stuff. I did it because it was just a really interesting... In fact, it was very difficult for me financially to, to go and do GitHub um, because I was at a better paying job before that. Um, it's not, you know, at the beginning, startups mm -hmm. don't, don't pay very well, right? When you, <laughs> or at all. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so, but it was just fun. Like, it was an interesting thing that I wanted to see in the world. And, and so I appreciate, I appreciate it when people are doing passion projects like this, things that they really love to do, right? And since we, we already touched on GitHub, we can segue into that. So first of all, just to get an idea from things that I've read and didn't and might be scattered around the internet, you're one of the co-founders of GitHub, but you weren't, from what I've read, there are three members and then you kind of... Yeah, yeah so it, it it's sort of a fine line between first employee and, and, and co-founder. Um, there was Chris and Tom were the, the first two people that, that had sort of started working on the project together and then brought on PJ a few months later and then hired me actually as a consultant a few months after that. Um, and then I came on full time, but we didn't hire any other software developers for probably a year after that as we, as we tried to get the business to, to the point that we could pay salaries. Um, and so... Very technically, I'm a co-founder of the GitHub C Corporation because um, mm -hmm. we were an LLC before that, and, and which I was not uh, a co-founder of um, so from the very beginning. But then we reincorporated, and, and my name is in the founding okay. document. So you could argue it either way. The the it's you know it's not really important to me. The the reason why um, I I talk about that is because internally in the company we would refer to me as a co-founder. Like all mm -hmm. of the employees knew me as a co-founder. Um, because it was useful for communication purposes, of course, right? Of, I just of, wanted of to figure that, out. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So you mentioned so uh, two friends, then another one joined in. You were in as consultant, and a few months later, you were hired full time. So let let's start from the, the moment you were already working with them, and specifically. So let's take even a step back. Yep. You already mentioned what GitHub is—the Facebook for developers. Was that always the idea? Was that always the side project? Was that always the vision? Um. That's hard to say. I'm trying to think back to sort of the original vision because um, the original vision was really more Tom and Chris's. Um, what I came on for was because I, I was in love with Git at the time. And so I was using it a whole lot at the job that I was at. There weren't that many people really using it professionally at that time. Um, and I was going to these Ruby meetups and talking about Git and showing people Git 
and writing, you know, Ruby implementations of Git and, and kind of trying to teach people what it was and how to use it and why it was cool. Um, and that's how I actually met all three of them is, mm -hmm. is we all met at these Ruby meetups. And so when they were talking about GitHub, right, they, they wanted a, a nice hosting solution that, that was kind of like SourceForge, but, but better, right? Just thinking of everything they hated about SourceForge. SourceForge being the GitHub before the, right. the, the platform by then. Being a, a place that, to, to upload source code um, okay. before that um, open source stuff. And so they were, we were all working on open source stuff and there was no really good place to share it. Um, most people would kind of host their own servers or, or put it on something like SourceForge. And, and so uh, when they were talking about, you know, having a really nice place to put Git code, that was really, I think what the original vision was, was a place for side projects, um, a place for open source, you know, a depot that you could, you could put open source code. Um, and a lot of the collaboration features that came later actually really weren't there in the beginning. It was really just, code hosting that didn't suck, right? So, so, um, and I don't even think that they had a, a, an idea to monetize it at first. Um, it, I think that actually came because one of our friends, uh, Jeffrey Grosenbach, who, who does a podcast and has a public publishing company, um, he wanted to use it for private stuff, right? He was like, I love this, I want to use Git, but I don't want to, you know, have this for my public stuff and then have to run my own Git server as well. Um, but it's for private code, right? So can I pay you to, to make that um, private? private? And and so we were like, I guess so. And I think PJ went and like implemented the billing system that weekend so that somebody <laughs> who asked to pay us for it could pay us for it, right? Um, which I think is a really great place to be, right? Is having customers say... I could pay for this. Yeah, I, I would really like to pay you for this thing. And in the <laughs> early days, actually, we had a lot of people paying for private repositories um, that that weren't using them just because they wanted a way to pay us. Like they liked the open source stuff so much. Um, they were like, they would sign up for a private account and like not put any, anything in it and just say like, I want to help out with this project and make sure you guys don't go away. Um, and so, so it really grew organically, right? Like that wasn't really the idea was to be this, this massive place that had every, the, all of the source code in the world. It was really just a, a good tool f focused on an individual developer. Mm -hmm. Like what does that experience look like for an individual developer? Um, and, and I think that's a good way to approach things, right? Is not, not necessarily from what the grand vision of the thing is, but mm -hmm. from the individual user and say, is this a great, if you're doing, if you're doing product like this, um, is this a great experience for this person? And does this really help this person's life? I think that's probably, I've never experienced that myself, but I think that should be one of the best sensations as a founder, as a creator of a product is first of all, to have people to pay for something just for the sake of paying it and, and enjoying and showing consideration for the, your, the, the creator's work. But at the same time, just when you probably have no idea of monetization, you have someone who kind of gives you the idea and it's a perfect fit for expectations and need. So I think you guys clearly found somewhere, somewhere, something there that happened to be a good fit in the market and which with your clients needs. And I think that should be a great sensation when you get someone to say, hey, I would pay you for this. You probably might think, well, okay. And let's see how it goes from there, I yeah. assume. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, we reacted to, to the community's needs a lot in the early days um, and trying to build something that was really useful for people um, and, and responding to their needs. And I think that focusing on that really helped the business as opposed to focusing on how to make more money, right? If, if uh, first of all, and before we go on and, and talking a little bit more GitHub, you mentioned several times Git. For more technical people, sure. for less technical people rather, yeah. what's Git? 
Right. So Git is a, a version control system that is sort of the, the heart of, of GitHub. Mm -hmm. um, and so essentially, if you're, um, let's say, writing a book, right, you would you'd maybe write it, write the first chapter in a, in a file or something. And then this version control system allows you to, to tell the system to take a snapshot of what that, that chapter looks like. Mm -hmm. And then you could go in and edit it and rearrange it and take another snapshot and edit it and rearrange it and take another snapshot. Second version, third version. Um, somebody else could could take it, like you, a co-author could take it and, you know, rewrite one of the paragraphs while you're adding more to the end. And then you could take a look at that and merge it together really easily instead of going through and hand, doing it by hand. And so um, it's just a really nice way of, of tracking work, right, over uh, sort of the history of work and collaborating with other people uh, on, on version documents. Um, and so source code has been under version control systems. There's been a whole bunch of them over the last 20, 30 years. Um, and, and Git is one of the newer incarnations of it. Um, but I've been using source, you know, version control systems since a whole bunch of them um, for, for 20 years, probably. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, as once again, as a non-technical person myself, I've heard about GitHub millions of times. But I've never been a user per se. I think I've downloaded one application there once no. because it's possible apparently. <laughs> okay, so going back to GitHub, so you join as a as a co-founder, and you don't hire a developer or an engineer for a full year. Yeah. When you left the company, how many people were there? When I left the company, there were I think four hundred and fifty employees. Yeah. So we we grew it and organically actually we we didn't take any VC um, any any fundraising we didn't do any fundraising um, at all yeah we bootstrapped the company I think I think Chris put like ten thousand dollars into it or something from from a savings account that he had um, and then we all worked for very low salaries at first uh, especially for the Bay Area um, and then as we were making money uh, as more as the site was making more and more money we would just up our salaries every month until they got more into a livable range I think we all ate into our into our savings for a while there at the beginning um, but yeah so our costs weren't particularly high we had friends at, at um, hosting companies and stuff that cut us deals on on you know having the site be live for for sort of putting their logo at the bottom and things like that. So we kept costs really low for a while. Um, and so as our user base grew and we made more money, we would we got our salaries up to, to you know, where they kind of was more normal for the area over the course of six months or so after I had started. Um, and then another six months of sort of growth until we could really hire another person. Mm -hmm. um, and we hired two people, I think, the next November or something. Um, 2009, probably this was. And... and we grew that way for about a hundred employees, right? So every time that we would, every you know, couple months, and then every month, we would kind of see what our re recurring revenue was, and and say, okay, we have enough money to hire another person now, and we hire another person, um, and then that window got shorter and shorter as we were growing faster, um, and so then we were hiring a whole bunch of people, you know, like a couple a month or a couple a week, um, and then we got up to about a hundred employees and decided to to raise a round of, of funding um, because we were in a really good position to, to do so, right? We were completely profitable. Um, and and a lot of the VCs knew who we were. All of their portfolio companies used us, right? So they all wanted to, to, to be invested in us. Um, and so we were in a, a really good bargaining position at the time. And so we raised our first round. Uh, we raised $100 million as our very first round of financing um, <laughs> when we had 100 employees. And then, and then I was there for another, another 
you know, five years probably. Um, and, and we ended up raising a second round. Um, and those were the only two rounds that we, we raised before the Microsoft sale, um, which happened a few months ago. Interesting. Yeah. So, and was the, so from my understanding, you basically hired engineers as the financial capability of the company went up. Right. Mostly engineers. Yeah. Yeah. We hired some other people as well. Um, but we never really got into marketing very heavily. I think we, we hired one person after the round, after we closed the the first round. So we didn't have a marketing person until we were over a hundred employees. Um, because uh, the, the the mouth word of mouth was yeah it was all was word of mouth yeah um, we didn't have uh, or some other PR we didn't have you know there, there were a whole bunch of we didn't have a CFO we didn't really have a finance team <laughs> um, until we yeah I mean we were making millions of dollars a month probably at that point and we didn't we didn't have a CFO um, so it was it was it was we we were really focused on engineering and and I think today. Uh, Looking back at it, that was probably a mistake. I think we should have been a little bit broader and, and thought through the business a little bit more. But but you know we were open source developers and and younger at the time, obviously, and and looking at the the problem that we had, which was trying to build this thing for engineers, and so we were hiring engineers to to solve that problem, right? Um, and and there was no, they were also product, right? All of our engineers, we were building things that we were using for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we didn't have like a product team or, or anything. It was really just engineering was like the bulk of the company. If, if I may ask, why, looking back now, why do you think you should have targeted more and got more finance people, product people? Is there any reason why, from, from your experience, of course, but what makes you think that just going engineer, engineer, engineer route was probably not the, I won't say best decision, but. I mean, we didn't, there, there were other decisions we made that were good. I, I should say um, a good amount of the company was customer service as well. Um, and so it was probably, you know, 60, 40 or 70, 30 engineering and, and customer service. So we did have a lot of customer service people, but um, which is incredibly important, right? Because, because a lot of, I think companies kind of try to not focus on customer service or, or, or make it really cheap or, you know, not not put a lot of resources there, and I think it's one of the most important things that your your company can do is yeah. is to make sure that you if make it easy for your customers to reach out to you and be really good at, at responding to them as much as possible and listening to them. Um, but yeah, I think I think looking back on it, it it would have been a slightly healthier as we grew. Um, I think because we were so much in engineering and there was nothing to push back on engineering, right? Mm -hmm. There was no sort of play between between product sort of stakeholders and then people implementing uh, the technical problems, the technical solutions, that because there wasn't, wasn't that play, that the engineering was just kind of figuring out what it was going to do and then implementing it, and, and there was nobody to say no or to say, you know, um, maybe this isn't a, a good idea. Um, I think it turned out okay, but, but it made for possibly an unhealthy work environment at times, right? Um, uh, sort of elitism or people saying we only hire the the best, which is highly subjective, right? But, but in of, theory, of that's that a good thing, no? It, it can be, but it's so subjective as to what the best means, right? And it also means that we never had a way to to sort of bring on junior engineers and, and bring them up. Um, I think there was a lot of, you know, other teams aren't as important as us sort of mentality in, in engineering, which is not true for for. I mean, it's true in the in the very short term, but in the longer term, 
um, having respect for for other organizations within your organization, I think is is incredibly important for to grow, right? Especially if you're going to be growing to thousands of employees. Um, I think GitHub's 900 employees now, but um, but but yeah. So I mean, in retrospect, I think it would have been better to have a little bit more structure mm-hmm. instead of just this sort of wild west engineering culture. Um, but it also, you know, it worked. I mean, we we grew and we were successful. So. Um, but I know that there were a lot of people that were kind of hurt in that process and that it could have been avoided. One of the things you mentioned earlier is that you listen to your community. And I think that you guys kind of grew on, we already mentioned, we grew, you grew on top of word of mouth. But I think that you grew on top of the good word of mouth also because you were able to cater to probably an unsatisfied community. Was that something that you figured out or because you were all developers, you were all interested in Ruby and apparently on Git? So was it was it something that was just this makes the most sense? And then as you progress the company, someone said, some engineers from the outside said, "Whoa, this is incredible!" And did it grow on from there? How did you manage to manage once again such a big community? I mean, you you yeah. say nine hundred developer uh, members was, now. Yeah, it was pretty difficult actually. I think it continues to be difficult because as we when we started, I think we were really just focused on the Ruby community. And and so this is good feedback for, you know, anybody listening that's doing sort of product work is if you're starting up a new company and you have this product to to not be super broad, but to choose one specific persona, right? One specific type of of customer and make them incredibly happy as opposed to, you know, be available to a broad range no, 1, of larger com- yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we focused on the Ruby community. We were all Ruby developers. Um, so we had the added advantage of we were our own core audience, but we really looked at the Ruby community and tried to make sure that they were happy and went to conferences and talked to people about the product and made sure that it was, it was solving all of the needs of this, this, this core community. As we grew, um, I think it became difficult because we didn't understand the problem sets of different types of developers, right? So to make Java developers lives easier like what does that mean like none of us had really ever written corporate java code or um windows developers like none of us had ever written a line of code on a windows machine before uh, what does that look like what are, how are those problem sets different um how does git work on those or you know what mm-hmm. is open source in that community mean um and and all of these answers are vastly different right and mm-hmm. there were ones that we had a really really hard time understanding and so um i think as we grew And and it continues today. Like there are still pockets of um, like groups of developers, developer communities that aren't using GitHub and, and having GitHub try to figure out how do we solve their problems as mm-hmm. well and sort of bring them into into the fold um, is is constantly a difficult a difficult problem. So I think it was just as we were growing, we would hire developers from these communities and say, teach us, you know, what what these what are your pains need, and yeah, and, interesting. and and how we can solve them. That's interesting because then you were basically getting, I won't say the enemy, but getting someone from the outside unknown world and figuring out what their pains were so you were able to cater to, the, to their needs. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And the other thing that we would do is go to conferences that were focused on these communities and give presentations on this is what it looks like from the Ruby world or, or something like that. Um, here's what Git is. And then people would come up to us after and say, this is irrelevant to our community because of this thing, or this would be great except for this problem, right? And so we would learn a lot from the communities through conferences. So we traveled, we, we made sure, we, we tried to encourage our, our employees to travel to conferences and to speak and to get in front of the community so that they would get feedback from everybody, right? That was mm-hmm. a, a really 
um, important thing for us is, and, and I still try to do a lot is, is speak at conferences and, and talk to people because that, that are in the, the communities that I'm looking at because people in person, I think, can be really honest about, about problems or about needs. Um, and, and, but they won't necessarily like go out of their way to email you this information, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think actually meeting your customers is really important as well. One, one thing that you, another thing you've mentioned several times is open source. And I'm once again, not technically gifted and I have always one fear of the idea of open source. And I think that you've had this conversation several times, but I just want to be sure. So open source in essence is showing the source code of your product, of your service, everything that's code, right? Source code. Once again, open source basically is showing how everything works. What's stopping me, for example, for copying, to copying you? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of different things here. One is that um, open source is more of a uh, sharing philosophy, right? And so it doesn't necessarily mean... So GitHub itself is not open source. The, the code that runs mm-hmm. the website is not open source. Um, we can uh, I'll answer that in a second of mm-hmm. what would it mean if it were. We had conversations about open sourcing it. Um, and there are competitors of, of ours that are open source. There are companies that do that. But the important thing for open source is that is more sharing pieces, right? And so if I write a library that does something very specific, purpose, right? Right. If it, if it uh, I don't know, takes spoken speech and turns it into text or something like that, and I spend a whole bunch of time on this code, um, you can do two, two different things. You can keep it for your company or you can make it open source and share it with the community so that anybody else that has this problem can use that as well. And, and the open source, the, the thing that makes it interesting is that it does seem like you're just kind of giving it away, I think, is sort of the, the, the older mentality for it. The open source mentality is you're sharing it, other people can take it and can improve it, and then can share those improvements with you, right? And so what it ends up being is that sort of anything that is not core to what you're doing, what your business is doing, something that is sort of a generalized problem, that, that you've had to, to fix, you share it with community and then you all work on it together. So, so that way you kind of outsource or I guess pool resources, right? Mm-hmm. So a hundred companies can all have engineers work on one product and then they don't all have to put all of the effort into it. And so that's kind of, I think the idea of open source is, uh, or at least from a corporate philosophy is that, is that anything that's not core to the business, you open source, and then that, that just shares the resources with every, or you share resources with everybody else to, to work on problems that aren't your core problem, right? And that way, it's really nice because when you start up a new company as a software sort of based company, you have all of these hundreds of thousands of libraries to choose from that you don't have to rewrite all of that code, um, and you can pull it and use it, and any problems you have with any of it, you can fix it, right, and then share it with the community, and then the rest of the community doesn't have that problem again. Um, that's the idea. And so GitHub really encourages that and facilitates that, right? Mm-hmm. If you were to go and look for a, a library that does something, you'd probably go to GitHub first and look for it because there's, there's so much source code there. Um, and that, that's, that's what open source means. And another question that I have is that having worked in the blockchain area, I think I seem to see that almost every blockchain project not only is open source, but is also on GitHub. Yeah. Why do you think that open source is such a big thing in the blockchain area? as well? Um, you know, I wish I could answer that question better, but I, I'm not very good at sort of the technical underpinnings mm-hmm. of blockchain okay. technology. And so I'm not entirely sure. Um, I would assume that there are, is some 
mechanism for which there's sort of a security mechanism behind mm-hmm. um, a lot of the blockchain technologies where it's important to see the open the, the source code so that you know that something isn't being sort of gamed in the system, right? Okay. Um, for distributed technologies, I think that that can be very important. Um, but but that's a little bit different. I think most of the open source that that's sort of a business reason for it, right? Mm-hmm. And there there are companies that do that again that that open source the source code of their of their entire service, and a lot of that is for security reasons, right? So you can make sure like this is how this code works. It's not gaming the system somehow. Um, but also, if you want to feature tech, like in some instances, you can your customers can modify it and either I run think a modified. Linux is it's a case of that, right? It's fully open source. Yeah, Linux is a case of that, but it's not it's, it's not a company, right? Um, okay. So there are companies that that offer services sort of on top of Linux, like Red Hat and Suzy and stuff. Um, but but it's not sort of the, it's not a company. Yeah, it's not a company. Like so it's Linux. not profiting out of that, right? So right. like Mozilla, it's the same thing. But, but Linux is a, is a great example of, of the first um, idea of this, the sort of corporations collaborating on a shared problem with open source, um, because Linux is actually mostly developed by or developers that work in organizations. Um, so I think Microsoft actually is one of the largest contributors to, to Linux patch-wise um, these days, um, because they're, they're using it for their Azure services. And and they have a lot of Microsoft developers working on Linux, right? And so they're, Microsoft is spending all of this money and all this developer time to, to provide patches to, to Linux and to, to help maintain it. Uh, GitHub had a Git developer that was working on open source full time. Um, tons, actually most of Linux, if you look at like the Linux report, um, it is contributed by, by corporations, right? It's, it's developers that are being paid by corporations to work on something uh, on, this, on this operating system that everybody takes advantage of. Before we go on and talk a little bit more about Chatterbug, I just have a couple more questions. So I read from your LinkedIn, you say that from all the years you're working at GitHub, you were doing sales, financial forecasting, office planning, whatever. And this is, I'm going to basically rip this question from Tim Ferriss with the founder of Dropbox. Sales specifically, it's something that usually engineers are not keen on doing. Is it, what made you, was it because it was necessary? Did you read anything or was it, did you learn on the job or was it? Yeah, so sales at GitHub was was a little bit uh, weird. We didn't do any outbound, I mean, again, we didn't do really any marketing. It was all word of mouth and we didn't do any outbound sales. So we, it wasn't sales in the sense of like cold calling mm-hmm. or, or um, you know, that, that type of thing. Um, but... When organizations would would have developers that were using GitHub internally, and then the developer would try to sell into the the their own organization, right? We should use GitHub, and then they would have somebody reach out and want to have a conversation with us about pricing and what that looks like. And we were selling, we started selling an on-premise version because the co- companies wouldn't want their source code to be on our servers. Um, and so sales, in this sense, meant going out, talking to them about their needs. Um, you know, figuring out how we could help, what if they had features that they needed that we could implement for a corporate perspective, um, and there was a lot of information we got we got out of that. Like we started implementing single sign-on systems that, corp- that that corporations use and enterprises use. We I'd never really worked in an enterprise company, so um, in this sense, sales was about talking with customers, figuring out what their needs are, mm-hmm. and then figuring out how we can help them. Which I think is actually good sales, right? Like mm-hmm. I think that most good sales do that. Um, but but eventually, you know, we hired professional salespeople. But I, I think it's like anything um, in in a startup, right? Like the first couple of people are going to do every possible job. Um, and I think it's good to build empathy for all of these different different roles in a company. Um, 
so that by the time you get big enough to bring somebody on full time, that you really have an understanding of what you need, how you want them to do it. Um, and for sales, it was, you know, we wanted to make sure that, that we respected our customers, mm-hmm. that we weren't doing a lot of cold calling, that we weren't um, bothering people, um, that we were trying to find out in a real way what their problems were and how we could solve them. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, any of those hats that I wore, I think, boiled down to gaining empathy for a role that we would have to expand. But was it learned on the job or do you have any kind of resources? Yeah, no, it was, it was all just sort of, actually, not only was it learned on the job, in a lot of these cases, it was just sort of made up, right? We, we <laughs> would figure out, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say we want sales, you know, in order to, to drive revenue. Um, we would look at what is sales? Like, what do we actually want to accomplish? And we'd think about this as as a group of the four of us, as the co-founders, we would meet every week and have discussions about what do we want this thing to look like? It doesn't need to look like what it looks like everywhere else. It, it can We can approach the problem from first principles and say, what do we really want to accomplish? First principles? Um, it was the way that we talked about uh, sort of breaking down everything to the simplest thing and then building it back up. Is, isn't that Socrates or something? I think that Elon Musk always uses their. First yeah, it's principles. a physics. It's a physics principle. I think is is going like forgetting what you think you know and thinking about what is what are we really trying to solve here, um, and then something rethinking. Scratch. Yeah, rethinking the problem. And sometimes it was good. Sometimes um, I think it it made the whole company be creative about a lot of things. Um, and we would always tell people to approach it from first principles. Right? I, there was a famous uh, quote by Ford, I think, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was about, if I listened to my customers, like I would have built faster horses, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's the idea of, of first principles is not, is listening to your customers and saying, okay, what do they really want? And and start from that and then figure out a better way for, for, for them or for us or, you know, sort mm-hmm. of together and not just build exactly what they want. And, and, and I mean, that's, that applies to sales, that applies to office design um we had uh highly remote uh, remote work right we did we had a bunch of uh remote employees and so we really spent a lot of time trying to think of why do we have people like why do companies want people to come into an office like what 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 does it provide them what does it provide the employee um what are the the fundamental principles that underlie having an office as 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 a as a company right um, what function does it serve? And and if it's just to make sure that your employees are working, then that's a pretty bad flawed principle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially now, especially in this sort of knowledge in, uh, environment, uh, knowledge work environment is like if you can't trust your employees to do that, then what are you like forcing them to to be in a place you can keep an eye on them is not going to make them work better, right? Or or work smarter. And so um, so yeah, all, all of these things I think we we would try to approach it from first principles. Say what are we really trying to do here, and then rethink the problem so that it's it's a better solution. And sometimes we ended up making mistakes that are you know hundreds of years old, right? Yeah. That that companies have not been or you know have processes in place in HR or whatever to avoid, and we didn't know it, and we relearned the mistake. Um, and in other in other cases, um, I think we we were innovative and we inspired uh, a lot of our employees and 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 built an inspired product that ended up working out very well. So. It's hard to say whether it was a good idea to do mm-hmm. that or not. I think if I had to do it over again, we would still approach a lot of these problems this way. That the mistakes maybe were worth the innovation, but um, but you know, it, I suppose it depends on the the particular problem. Uh, now, before we go on to chat about the last area that I just want to to, to mention is uh, the acquisition by Microsoft. First of all, were you still working when were you still at GitHub 
when the acquisition went through? No. No. So, so actually two things. It hasn't closed yet, so it's still okay. subject to regulatory approval. It'll probably close by the end of the year. Um, but... Uh, so all the values that are outside are just reports. There's still not a clear public value of that? Uh, right. right. Okay. So, so there's no stock or, or cash exchanged yet. Okay. Um, my, or GitHub's still operating independently. The new Microsoft management, uh, they're, they're, um, by management I mean CEO, mm-hmm. uh, Microsoft is having Nate Friedman be the new CEO, who's a big open source guy, um, has been in the Linux and Microsoft communities for a long time. Um, and I think is going to be a, a great CEO, but that hasn't actually happened yet, right? So, so that'll happen in a, in a little while. But um, there is a, a definitive agreement, right? And so that was what that was what Satya announced. Um, and and I so I left GitHub two years ago to start Chatterbug, mm-hmm. um, and then I left the board of GitHub uh, one year ago, I think. So I actually am not involved in GitHub on a day to day process or basis anymore. Um, I still talk with people there. I still keep up with what's going on. I visit the office occasionally, but um, uh, but not on a daily basis. Um, I do still have all my stock from from my founder stock from the time, and so I am sort of heavily. They they called me maybe a week beforehand um, to let me know what was going on and and to get a letter of endorsement um, uh, as a major shareholder. But yeah, it, it's not it's not quite okay. over yet. Okay, so and the second question, because then if you're no longer there, I mean, you can have opinions, but were you there when, let me rephrase this, how long is usually an acquisition process, how long does it take usually? Um, it depends on the acquisition. I think a lot of large deals, especially by Microsoft, mm-hmm. um, you know, have to go through antitrust um, in, in the United States, so it has to be approved by federal government and and also... Um, a lot of different places that Microsoft operates. So the EU, we're trying to, you know, I think they're trying to get it through um, merger approval for, from mm-hmm. the EU as well. So there's a whole bunch of different places that need to say yes, and they need to get them all done sort of before uh, the final deal. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know what the process is like. Usually, I've never really been through an M&A process. So, so you weren't there when that process began? No. no okay. No. It, yeah. Okay, interesting. Okay, then the, the questions I had more specifically in terms of the... The acquisition process, I want to ask you specifically because you were not there, so I can't ask. Thank you so much for plugging into this episode. I truly hope you love this conversation as much as I did. I know you wanted to stay here and listen to the full conversation, and I hope you're as excited as me to listen to the second part of the interview. Any information that you might have missed will probably be linked up in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider subscribing to make sure that this podcast grows and we can get some more people and help everyone be the pioneers of their lives and careers. Also, if there's any feedback that you might have for me, please reach out on social media or leave a review. I will always read. And if there's any interesting reviews, I will also share them on the show. A big thank you to Scott for his time and to Thibaut Flondlin, a.k.a. DJ Rodia, check it on the show notes, for the music of the Pioneers show. Talk to you on Monday when the new episode is released. Until then, have a great time. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.